And as children worship begins in their worship centers downstairs, um, I invite you to uh, join here in James chapter 1. We have a little bit of reverb. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, as well as 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Now, there's going to be, um, for many weeks of this series, there's going to be two different scripture passages that we read together, and we're going to read both of them in both weeks. And there's going to be a different focus, though, both times. So this week, we're focusing mostly in James chapter 1, but we're also holding on to something that 1 Peter 5 has to offer us. Next week, we're just going to read a couple verses from James 1 to remind us where we were, but we're going to spend more time in 1 Peter chapter 5 and read a few more of the verses in that section. The reason that we're doing this is because just as last week we had a, a tire out where there's um, good teaching and doctrine and theology help us inform how we read the Bible well, the first rule of that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And to practice that, we're going to read two different texts as they echo and relate to one another because the Bible will talk about the same thing in different places. So we're going to build some of our attentiveness to that uh, throughout this fall series. And so we'll hold on to two different texts every week. This is how we will practice what interpreting Scripture with Scripture looks like in good ways because this is where good theology and sound doctrine is born. But before we do so... We're going to pray together because we ask for God's Holy Spirit to be at work in the reading of the Word and in the ways in which God moves in our hearts. And so, and you'll also hear reference in the prayer to the, the written Word and the incarnate Word. And just a reminder, the written Word is the Bible, that's Scripture, and the incarnate Word, or the Word made flesh, is Jesus Christ. To remember, remind us from John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is a reference to Jesus. So let's pray together for God's blessing upon the Word. God, we give you thanks for the gift of your written Word, for the story of your people, for telling us the truth about who we are and about who you are. God, we thank you for this truth that we find in your written word, and especially for the testimony of who your son, Jesus Christ, the living word, is. May our reading of the written word be inspired by your Holy Spirit so that we can come more and more to know and to shape our hearts and our minds and our lives and actions after you, Jesus, the incarnate word. So may what we read together today May it be discerned by a community of believers, and may you be at work to shape us to be more and more like the incarnate word of which the written word testifies. Speak your truth to us, O Lord. Amen. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived... 
it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. And now turning to 1 Peter chapter 5, just verse 8, just that verse alone to hold on to this week. 1 Peter 5.8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The devil made me do it. This is the the next two weeks of our series as we begin the book, Half-Truths. And one thing that some of you who have actually already read the book will note is that this is not a chapter in the book that we're reading. I'm actually kind of pleased that this is what we planned because one comment that we got from someone who already read the whole book, because some of you are like that, was that of of all of the, the wrestling around truth, there's no mention of the devil. There's no mention of any adversary working against us. And so we're really pleased, actually, that that was one thing that we had planned into this series was to start with this phrase, the devil made me do it. Now, it's not a common phrase. It's not a popular one that I hear a lot. Um, But it does exist in culture. It has a certain ring to it. What I didn't know until I was discussing some of the topics we were going to cover this fall um, was that there is a particular comedian who popularized this phrase, the devil made me do it. And when when one person mentions something to me, I, I make note of it. When two people mention it, I start to wonder if there's something I should really be listening to. When five different people mention the same thing to me in the narthex, then I have to look into it. And so I heard from five different people last week that the comedian who popularized the phrase, the devil made me do it, was Flip Wilson, who I had never heard of before. But I did have to spend a good half hour on YouTube listening to Flip Wilson this past week to figure out who is this person that popularized the phrase, the devil made me do it, and exactly what was the act that they used. And... I mean, it's a different day of comedy, and so to what I listen to is all very, very clean and clever, um, and I appreciated that side of it. But what Flip Wilson does is he uses the devil made me do it as an excuse. And and the one I listen to, which I was told is one of the classics, is is there's a a couple having an argument, and there's a woman who, who just bought another dress, even though she already has lots of dresses and, and already bought two or three that week. And her reasoning on why she bought one more dress that day was because the devil made me do it. Because she was just walking down the street, minding her own business, not meaning to buy any more dresses by any means, when she was walking down a particular lane and in the window there were dresses and she wasn't going to look at them, but the devil made her do it. The devil made her look at the dresses. And then it was after she was looking at the dresses and thought, no, I don't need another dress, Well, she just heard that voice saying, well, it doesn't cost you anything to try it on. You can do that for free. 
And the devil made her try on the dress. And then when she tried it on, it was, the devil made me do it when she realized that the dress looked good and then bought another one and then had to go home and give an account of her actions. And the whole premise was based on the devil made me do it. Now, what's funny and really quite clever about all of the the devil made me do it acts that I heard from Flip Wilson is that he actually uses some echoes from scripture to describe the way the devil is at work. So there's one layer of that that I found very, very appealing and intriguing. It's the, it's the twisting of some words. It's the, uh, it's the, the small little things that, that can turn into something bigger. It's a little lie or a small suggestion that can grow and gain its own momentum. But what's also just funny about the whole thing, in addition to clever writing, is that this is usually, all of the devil made me do it sketches are people who already made their own choices and they were actually the choices that they wanted to make. But they're using the excuse, the devil made me do it. They're not talking about spiritual choices or big life decisions. They're talking about everyday things that they just did and then if they get in trouble for it, then it's, the devil made me do it. That is something to be aware of for us. And the reason we're reading James 1 and 1 Peter 5.8 is that we are holding on to 1 Peter 5.8, which says, the devil, your adversary, naming that there, there is this devil who is an enemy, the devil, your adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So there is an antagonist, and that antagonist, that enemy, is personified. But... First Peter does not say in any way, the devil made me do it, even by owning the reality of the devil. And instead, similarly, when we go to James, there is no room in James's account of sin to say, the devil made me do it. James, in some ways, it, it, more than any other New Testament letter, is the champion letter of personal morality. James is the letter that champions personal morality. And what does James say about temptation, about sin? When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires. By their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. James doesn't leave any room in our decision-making process to to put the blame on the devil. James is saying all all of the, the evil inclinations, all of the temptations you face, those are already yours. Those are already somewhere in your heart. So there's the full truth, the half truth, and the non truth. The the non-truth that James just lays out right away is that you can't say that God is tempting you. James is saying, nope, there's no room for that. That's the non-truth. You can't say God is tempting me because God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. That's the non-truth. But then moving to the half-truth of saying the devil made me do it, that's where James and Peter, both talking about sin, temptation in those respective chapters are talking about the same thing. 
But James isn't leaving any room for what we could call blame displacement. James is not saying that when Christians do bad things, that it's a viable excuse to say, the devil made me do it, or to blame it on someone else. Blame displacement is just something in our human nature. It's when when we feel caught, when we feel in trouble, when we feel that we've done something wrong and someone's found out about it. To displace blame is to put the blame somewhere else so that we don't have to own it ourselves. We see this right away in in Genesis chapter 3. When God said, where are you? Adam blamed Eve, blame displacement. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Oh, no. Now, I could say about that pun, for one, I've used it before. I'm sorry for the repetitious use, but it's a good one. I could say, the devil made me do it, but that's not true. Do you know why I tell puns? It's not because the devil made me do it. It's because I think they're funny. And I actually kind of enjoy the mix of laughter and groans and eye rolls and whatever else you get out of it. That's not on the devil. That is 100% on me. James would agree, and Pastor Audrey would agree with James. (laughs) But blame displacement is a way that we we can actually take the devil less seriously if the devil just becomes our cosmic scapegoat for any mistakes that we make. If we're supposed to take, I mean, the way Peter describes the devil, the devil is something to be pretty aware of, not to be ignored or undermined but also not to be overestimated that we give too much credit or credit in the wrong ways. Consider if you had, we've got a few medical professionals here, if you got a medical diagnosis, ignoring it or pretending that it's less of a big deal than it is, is not helpful. That's different than making peace with something, than letting something take its course. But to just ignore a problem in hoping that it'll go away, that doesn't help. Nor does it help to put all of our eggs in one basket. We have to wrestle with what the devil does and the way the devil's at work, but also hear passages like James call us out that we don't just use it to displace blame. Now, this can make us, there's some circular logic to this, and that's why there's some tension to be held. There's something to be paid attention to. But if we're careful, If we're careful in our reading of Scripture, the written word will always point us back to Jesus, the incarnate word. And so I would caution, even as we read about the devil is, and as next week we spend more time in in how this adversary is working against us, that we don't get focused on the devil only. But as Reformed Christians, this is a Reformed church in the Reformed tradition, one of the things that we are pretty unrelenting on in our reading of Scripture is a God-centered reading, that the written word points us to the incarnate word, who is Jesus, God's own son, member of the Trinity. How does reading about the devil make us also point our way back to God? James is one of the passages that does that well, and we'll see the, first, we'll see the, the same thing in 1 Peter. There's temptations out there, and I think there's room in reading James 1 to understand the devil might be at work somewhere in there, but we can't give the devil all of the ownership. But what is God up to in this text? 
God is, in verse 12, blessing the one who perseveres under trial. God, in verse 17, we're reminded, is the giver of every good and perfect gift from above, so that, verse 16, so that we're not deceived. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift coming down from the Father of the heavenly gifts who does not change like the shifting shadows. But verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. There's two different birth narratives in James 1. One is where our own evil desires, our own, conceive and give birth to sin. And then sin gives birth to death. The other birth narrative in James 1 is that of God who chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Not through half-truths, not through blame displacement, not through scapegoating, but rather to be given the word of truth, that we can be born into something that's beyond us. Because our, our evil desires, we carry those around. If we spend some time in deep conversation... We could probably identify what some of our evil desires are that we carry with us. Those are our own. But God is trying to let us have something different, something better. God gives us birth through the word of truth so that there's something that we maybe don't have access to on our own, but that we grow into being more and more like Jesus. We do this through studying the written word or, or praying together or discerning with one another. This is the theocentric, the God-centered lens. is to not just say, the devil made me do it whenever we mess up, but to ask, if God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, what are the good and perfect gifts that are at our disposal even when we feel tempted or led astray? There's temptations in the world, but God also gave us minds. God gave us the ability to be in relationship for people who will help us and walk alongside of us even when we are tempted. God gave us hearts that have the gift of empathy to relate to other people who have maybe been down a road of struggle that you yourself have already gone down or to give the gift of walking alongside of someone else. God gives the gift of encouragement through us for all who are struggling. So there are temptations. That's all real. And there's a devil, and that's all real. But there is also good and perfect gifts that God gave us that should be the higher focus than just the ways in which the devil is at work. So stay God-centered in your reading. One thing that I have observed, and maybe not as much here, but... When I was in high school, I um, was a part of a, a, a secondary youth group, not at my own church, but at a different church, because for a couple years of, of my life, I was really intrigued by more, more charismatic circles, more Pentecostal churches. And so there was a youth group that I went to with some other friends in another town. And, and just for me being about as reformed as reformed can get, I mean, I didn't even grow up with veggie tales. I just had the Heidelberg Catechism. Growing up in just this particular version of the Reformed Church, um, being exposed to these charismatics w was a fascinating experience. 
Uh, there is people praying in tongues. There is people um, praying for healing. There is faith healing occurring. There were people prophesying, um, even saying things to me about myself that I didn't know yet or wasn't even sure if I agreed with yet. There was this thing called apostolic sending, um, which I sometimes question where the authority came from for them to send someone out. It was this whole new world of faith expression that I didn't even know existed. Going to that youth group, there was a series that they did on, um, basically on the devil and our struggle with the devil. And they used, James does mention the devil, they used James 4, 7, which says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is in James. There's a little bit more to it as well. But what I noticed during the series was, for one, I didn't give much awareness to the devil. So there is something to be paid attention to. What I also observed was that the more we talked about the devil, it seemed like the devil was getting more and more credit all the time. Now, my friend Trevor was usually my ride. We'll call him Trevor. My friend Trevor was usually my ride to and from this youth group. And Trevor grew up in this church. Um, he, he was just as charismatic as I was reformed. And as we're going through the series on the devil, two weeks in a row, I was just with him on the way back. And he was describing to me all of the ways in which the devil was working on him, all of the ways in which the devil was whispering in his ear, all the ways in which the devil was leading him astray. What I noticed was it wasn't actually building within him any ideas of how to resist the devil. It wasn't a, a prayer. It wasn't uh, coming up with any kind of strategy. It was just, oh yeah, these things keep happening and the devil keeps making me do them. You can fill in the lines to understand that this high school peer of mine was saying that the devil kept tricking him into situations where he was alone with his girlfriend and some boundaries were being crossed that should not have been crossed. Now, okay, you got into the situation and you're saying the devil made you do it then, but you still put yourself in that situation. Didn't God give you a mind to think ahead, to, to be careful, to be thoughtful, to not get to that point? So eventually, I was just hearing this version of the devil made me do it over and over again. Until one day, when it was just Trevor and I driving home, he asked me what I thought about everything that he had shared. And my simple response almost uh, didn't get me a ride the rest of the way home. I said, Trevor, I do believe the devil is real. And I also don't think the devil has to work as hard as you think. You are doing so much of this on your own. You are making conscious choices that are leading you down a path. And it's only once you've messed up that you're coming back and saying, the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make you do this. Maybe at work, maybe looking for an open opportunity. But I went back to James 1. Does our awareness or reading of the scripture that the devil exists, how does it lead us back to God or to understand where God is at, even with an enemy and adversary, that we don't just scapegoat our mistakes on someone else? What this can lead to instead is an avoidance of personal responsibility, 
a, a disowning of the ownership that we should have over our own actions. The example is also given of getting a speeding ticket and saying, it's not my fault. Well, if you were driving the car, it's completely your fault. You can point to circumstances all you want, but you are still the one in control of the vehicle. As I said, I make my puns. I don't do it because the devil made me do it. I do it because I like to make people laugh or roll their eyes. Either one works for me. But I know that even going to the different youth groups as a high school student, that desire to make people laugh was always there. And it, as I told my parents and as they agreed, I was always in mischief but never in trouble because of this. And what I can tell you is that the devil did not make me light things on fire with Bunsen burners in lab classes. The devil did not make me hide behind a podium during English one day. The devil did not make me do any of the foolish driving with vehicles, either agricultural or personal vehicles, that I found myself doing. The devil did not make me do any of that. I did that all on my own because making people laugh made me feel good. Showing off in front of people I wanted to impress made me feel good. Think of all the things that we could say the devil made me do it or try to, to rein in a little bit and then wonder and catch yourself, didn't you do some of these because you wanted to? Have you ever lost your temper with someone because it felt good to yell at them? There's all kinds of things that we do that they're ours. They're ours that we wanted to do. And we can need to be very careful to not pretend the devil doesn't exist, but also not to give so much credit that we actually, we kind of miss the mark on what the devil's really up to. We miss the mark on seeking non-truths versus half-truths versus full-truths. And we just use the devil as an excuse. That's different from the rhythm of confession and assurance. As Pastor Audrey said, God calls us back. So friends, this week, be on the lookout for that devil, your adversary, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Someone who maybe wants to lead you astray or to believe something about yourself that isn't true or to believe something about God that isn't true. But also be on the lookout for what your own heart is looking for. Is it popularity? Is it security, either financial or physical? What are some of the things that are our own desires that we're trying to meet? And it all seems fine and good until we get caught or get in trouble. And then we want to default to putting it on someone or something else. The devil made me do it. just doesn't cut it. Watching our own hearts, paying attention to our own desires, and sharing with others around us, even those who will challenge us, is one of the best spiritual disciplines we can do to be countercultural in a toxic age. And this means not seeking the security of people who agree with us, but even of friends who will be honest and loving enough to call us out. Next week, we'll spend just a reminder on James 1 with this, this bent on our own desires that give birth to sin and death. But switch over to 1 Peter 5. 
and see what exactly does Scripture say about this devil who's prowling around looking, who's maybe twisting truths or, or trying to make us want to do something. That'll be next week. But this week, you might not hear the words, the devil made me do it, but you might hear the sentiment of blaming someone else. And you might, if you look close enough in your own heart, see your own desires taking on a shape and form that is not what you originally intended. Friends, it's God who made us come to his word to be more like him because God first loved us. And so it's in God's name that we pray. God, you know our hearts. You know the things that we love and enjoy. Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We've no Friends, in just a moment, our deacons will come forward to collect the morning's tithes and offerings. And as we do so, I just would like to use the song Amazing Grace as a sort of parable for the generosity that we seek to practice. Most of us, uh, many of us at least, would know those words and could sing them reflexively because we've sung them and they become a part of us. And those words then are always ready on our lips. In the same way, when we give of our tithes and offerings, we don't give out of compulsion. Um, we don't give because we're buying our dues or paying for a, a, a membership fee, um, but we give out of generosity. And so we do believe that there's this practice of giving that becomes a part of who we are, and this is to shape our hearts to be generous, to model God's generosity. So as we do so, um, we'll pray together for the, what is offered um, and do so in reflexive generosity for the needs of our world. And there's a good reminder of that right up here um, on the stage. Let's pray together. God, you have shaped us to follow after you and to model our hearts after your heart. And your heart is generous and loving. And so help us in the practices that we do to uh, seek your generosity, to love as you first love, to be generous as you were first generous with us. In all of this, um, may we seek to, as we sung, build your kingdom here um, in the ways in which we do ministry here within our, our own building, in our space, the ways in which we support um, throughout the world our missionaries, through the ways in which we connect with our local partners that are doing the good work for the needs that are right here in our communities, in our neighborhoods. In all of these, Lord, help us to live not under compulsion, not under shame, but with a willful generosity to model ourselves after you and to give what we have determined in our hearts to give. Let our hearts be shaped more and more like yours, Lord. Amen.
this time, if deacons will please come. And we also invite you to sign and pass the fellowship paths at the end of your rows um, so we can come to know one another better. Thanks.